the wisdom, righteousness, grace, and glory of God were prophesied and revealed in the events of the Christmas story. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Christmas represents many things to us, doesn't it? Uh, Many wonderful things, maybe many wonderful memories. It can be a time of great joy and celebration. But I know that Christmas holidays can also be a difficult time. It can be a hard time for us as well, can it? Maybe there are some painful memories, or maybe it's a realization that maybe we don't have certain things in our lives that we wish that we did have, and it can just remind us of those things. So I pray then that whether you are anticipating a very happy and merry Christmas or maybe you might be struggling with some thoughts and feelings now, I want you to know that whatever your situation might be, that you can know and can have great joy, can great have, can have great happiness in the Lord as we celebrate this Christmas. And I pray that we will all keep our focus there this Christmas on what it's all about, which is Christ, Christ coming for us and giving us the gift of eternal life through faith in him, in his name. So I pray that whatever your circumstances, you will have great joy in him this Christmas then. Just a reminder here, what is, uh, what is Christmas? What is this? What are we looking at here today? Is this, that Christmas is a celebration. It's a celebration of when God became a man in order that he might rescue us from the curse of sin and death. And it is at the heart of God's grand story of creation and fall, redemption and restoration. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, willingly left his glorious heavenly throne, and he humbled himself by taking on human flesh. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. He offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sin. He died and was buried. On the third day, he rose bodily from the grave, victorious over the curse of sin and death, and he appeared to many. He instructed his followers to proclaim the good news and to watch faithfully for his return when he will fulfill all his kingdom promises, render final judgment, and then make all things new. That's a great summary right there, isn't it, of what our faith is and what we're celebrating. So because God became a man then, we can have eternal life, peace, hope, light, and joy forever. And he is most worthy of our praise. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, our theme here in Christmas is we're talking about God's grand story. And the Christmas story is the, the story within God's bigger story, the grand story of creation and fall, redemption and restoration. This is what God is doing in this world. God has made all things. He made human beings in his image. That is, they were made to be like him in certain ways and capable of being in a relationship with God. But we were given a choice that we could follow him, be obedient to him, or we could choose not to rebel against that as our ancestors did, Adam and Eve, and they fell into sin. But this did not surprise God as he had a plan to redeem, to save them, and to save many 
who would, who would come after them. And that one day he is coming again. Jesus will come again to restore and to make all things new. This is God's grand story. But Christmas then is the story within the grand story of when God came into the world, when he humbled himself, came into the world in order that he might procure or provide redemption for us then. Continuing in our series here, looking today at prophecies, prophecies of the story, looking at a few different scripture passages in Genesis, Isaiah, and Micah. Uh, Genesis 3, 15, and Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Isaiah 7, 14, 9, 6 through 7, and Micah 5, 2. But with putting all of those together here, here is the big idea. Here is the main idea that I want us to take away from our message here today. And that is that the wisdom, righteousness, grace, and glory of God were prophesied and revealed in the events of the Christmas story. You know, in this Christmas story, we see God's great wisdom, his righteousness, his grace, and his glory. All of these things were prophesied long before and then revealed in the events of the Christmas story. But before we look at our first text in Genesis 3, a little context here. We said God created all things and he made human beings in his image. Adam and Eve were placed in a garden, a paradise, and they were given free reign of that. They were told they could eat of all of the trees of that except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was restricted, and they chose, though, to rebel against that, and they did eat. They rebelled against God. They fell into sin, and as a result, all of us then also then have fallen in sin with them. And with that sin, there became a pronouncement of judgment, a curse. God judged Satan, who was the serpent in the garden, the woman, Eve, and the man, Adam. But even in judgment, we see in that the first hint of God's grace, of redemption, the gospel, the good news. So let's look here in Genesis chapter 3 verses 4 through 15, right after the fall of human beings into sin. And now the pronouncement of judgment says, The Lord God said to the serpent, to Satan, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman." And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here we see in these prophecies of the Christmas story, we see first that the offspring of woman would defeat Satan. That the offspring of woman would defeat Satan. We're told God says, I will put enmity. What is enmity? Hatred. Hatred. War struggle, battle, warfare between you and the woman. Now, in one sense, how many of you here really like snakes? Anybody? Okay. There's usually one or two people that, that, that actually like snakes. Most people, we don't like snakes here, okay? Now, I'm not to, I'm, but I'm going to tell you, a lot of people don't like snakes, you know, and uh, maybe it goes back to this or maybe not. I don't know. 
But that really isn't what God is talking about here when he's talking about this warfare between you and the woman here. He's talking about what? It is a warfare or a struggle, not between human beings and and snakes, but what? Between satanic forces, demonic forces. It's spiritual warfare or struggle that we are engaged in warfare. There is an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So there is this enmity between your offspring. What are your offspring? It's your your seed, your family, those who are like you, between you, Satan, and her offspring, her seed, her family, those who are like her. What? Humans, human beings who would follow after them. In other words, there was going to be now a great struggle or battle, or warfare between satanic spirits and human beings. That this is a spiritual struggle. This is warfare. Can anyone uh, give testimony to the fact that we are in fact engaged in a great spiritual struggle, aren't we? It is a daily battle, isn't there? And there is this battle that is going on between demonic forces, the fallen realm, and human beings. However, though, out of this offspring of the woman, there would come one particular offspring. There would come one who would suffer pain at the hands of Satan, but he would deal Satan a crushing blow. Where do you see that? Well, you see, I see enmity between your offspring and her offspring, but then what? He He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That word translated bruise can also mean to to strike or to crush. So Satan would strike or crush his heel, but he would strike or crush Satan's head. Who is this he, this particular offspring of the woman that's in view here? Jesus, right? The Messiah. And when this one comes, Satan would strike his heel. Uh, anybody ever had like a, an injury, like an Achilles heel injury? Remember that? Pretty painful. You know, we had uh, Aaron Rodgers, but I tell you, this, this was something else, right? The, the longtime nemesis of the Bears, right? And, and let's face it, Bears fans, he owned us, didn't he? You know, it's painful to say, but it's true, right? But he left Green Bay. He goes on to the New York Jets. And the very first game of the season, it's what, about two or three plays into the game, he gets injured, his heel, his Achilles heel, he's out supposedly for the season. Now he's talking about maybe he's going to come back, try to, I don't know why he would do that other than, well, okay. Who thinks I should go just discontinue on here and get away from that bunny trail? Okay. So anyway, all right. So we're going to go on from there. So that's a painful thing to have your heel injured like that. But if you had to choose between having your heel injured or having your head crushed, which of the two would you take? The heel injury, right? So God is prophesying here that that there's going to be an offspring of the woman and that Satan was going to wound him, was going to hurt him. 
but that he would wound Satan. In fact, it would be what? A mortal crushing blow. You can recover from a heel injury. Getting your head crushed, not so much, right? So who is this one? This one is Jesus. Was his heel crushed? Was he wounded? Was he injured? Oh, yes, he was in the cross, wasn't he? But it was not a mortal blow. But through the ministry of Jesus and what he did, was Satan's head crushed? Yes, that was a mortal blow that ultimately defeated him. Now, as I mentioned before, this is the first hint in the Bible. Immediate, right after the fall into sin, the first hint of redemption or the gospel in the Bible. And so sometimes Bible scholars call this verse, Genesis 3.15, they call it, what do they call it, Kurt? Where's Kurt? Right. The Proto-Uangelion. Excellent. Next, excellent job there, Kurt. Yeah, so... We had uh, talked about this in a Bible study some time back, and that just really stuck with Kurt, and he's got it, and he remembers that. So this is the Proto-Uangelion. It means proto means the first. Uangelion is the good news, right? The good news. And so this is the first hint of the gospel or the good news in the Scripture. Right after the fall, we hear one is coming. He will be injured. But he will deal you a death blow, Satan. The first hint of the gospel in the scriptures here. Well, now we want to jump forward in our text to the the calling of Abram, whom we would know later as Abraham. And the first hint of blessing that would come on all human beings through one who would follow Abram. Told in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we saw that the offspring of woman would defeat Satan. Now we're prophesied here that the offspring of Abraham would bless all peoples. Abram means exalted father. Abraham, the father of a multitude. And when we are first introduced to Abraham in the scriptures, he is living in Ur of the Chaldees, a city in the east, along with his father, Terah. He lived in a pagan culture, and his father, Terah, was an idol worshiper. But somehow, in the midst of that culture and that family situation, the true and the living God reached out and called to Abram and called him to himself. He made himself known to Abram. He called him to leave that city, to leave her, and to go to the land where he would show him. Now the entire family then migrated to another city called Terran, and after the death of Terah, God once again, his call came to Abram, and he was told he must leave his country and his father's home and go to the land that the Lord would show him. Now, that was a huge step of faith for him to do that. 
Just think about that. Abram had a very comfortable life. He was older. He had a family to care for. He was very prosperous. He was all set. But then, boom, one day God says, leave all of that behind and go. And he doesn't even tell him exactly where to go. He just says, go and I will show you. Didn't even tell him exactly where. Now I wonder, would you have done that? Would I have done that? How many of us would do that? Would you leave all of the comfortable and safe and familiar behind in order to embrace a total unknown simply because someone purporting to be the Lord of the universe said to do so? That was a big step of faith, wasn't it? Well, fortunately for us, Abram did obey. He obeyed the call of God, and he left his country to go to the land that the Lord would show him. Now, Abram was by no means a perfect man, but here we see a wonderful demonstration of faith. He left everything behind to follow God. He believed what God said, and, that was de- and, and then demonstrated that faith with his, with his obedience to God's command. So in numerous passages in the scriptures, we see him as an example of faith. When Abram left his homeland, he couldn't possibly have understood everything that God was going to do in him and through him. But nevertheless, he believed God. He trusted God. And as the Apostle Paul states in the book of Romans, God credited that faith to him as what? Righteousness. We're made righteous with God by our works? No, by faith, by trust in God. So with that faith, there also came a promise by God, and it was a promise of astounding blessing. Blessing, divine favor, approval, good gifts, expressions of kindness. And God emphatically declares that he will bless Abram. He's told I will bless you, Abram, and you will be a blessing. Through this, you will be a blessing to others. God is still doing that today, isn't it? He calls us to believe and to obey, and then he blesses us in various ways in order that we might bless others too, right? And God's promise of blessing here was threefold. There was a personal blessing for Abram. There was a a national blessing for that nation which would come from him, the nation of Israel. But then there was also then a universal blessing that would be for all people, all the families of the earth. So God did make Abram's name great. He did make a great nation out of him and the Israelites, the Jewish people that came from him. But he also, though, God promised that what? In you, Abram, in this one who comes after you, I will bless all the peoples, all the families of the earth. And who is this descendant of Abraham who would be a blessing to all people, not just Abram's people, but to all the people of the earth? Who was this descendant? Jesus Christ. So the offspring of Abraham would be a blessing to all people. How is he a blessing to all people? By providing salvation for all people, to all who would believe. Well, we want to jump forward now to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. And here we are about 700 years before the coming of Christ. 
And the Lord is speaking to a king, and he challenges, this, he challenges a king with a promise here. And in so doing, we find a prophecy of one who would come. Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 10, says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. So here we're told that the offspring of the virgin would be called Emmanuel. Again, we're writing about this is about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Remember, there was the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. God had warned them for centuries about the consequences of sin, of disobedience. But nevertheless, idolatry and corruption were rampant in the the land. And God had said that obedience would bring blessing, but disobedience would bring judgment. And despite all the warnings, the people persisted in disobedience and rebellion. And now judgment was coming. It was coming in the form of foreign armies against them. Israel had been defeated by the Assyrian Empire. And now Judah is being threatened as well. And the king of Judah, Ahaz, is trying to make foreign alliances in order to protect himself and the kingdom. Instead of repenting and trusting in God, he is trying to manage it by his own human wisdom and ways. But God confronts Ahaz, and he makes him an incredible offer says there, verse 11, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. He's saying, Ahaz, ask anything of me. Ask any me to do something. As high as the heaven, as deep as Sheol. Ask me anything to show you that I am here, I am real. You can trust me. I will deliver you. How many of you sometimes have have, have wanted, you know that God is there, you know he is real, you know he is good, but sometimes you're saying, Lord, could you just give me a little sign or something that, you know, you really are there and you really do have this, right? We can feel that way sometimes, can't we? And so he says to this king, ask me anything, I will do it for you to show you, I'm with you, you can trust me, I've got you. But the king wouldn't do that. He said, oh, no, 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 I don't want to put the Lord to the test. Now, doesn't that sound really spiritual and mature on his part? Doesn't it sound like he, oh, no, 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 Lord, I don't need a sign. I, 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 uh, I don't want to put you to the test. Well, just in those words, that, that sounds pretty good. Like, well, very good, Ahaz, right? You're going to trust anyway. You don't need a sign. But no, that really wasn't what it was. God knew his heart. And God knew what? That his heart was what? Of of unbelief. So it was an excuse. And he says, well, I I don't want to put you to the test, but 
Really what he's saying is it was a lack of faith. And so God says, well, I tell you what, I will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and she'll call his name Emmanuel. Now, in this immediate context here, as you know, the the nature of biblical prophecy is that sometimes there is an immediate context and an immediate fulfillment, but there is later a deeper context and a deeper fulfillment of that. And so in that immediate context, there was somebody saying, a virgin, this would be a, a young woman, was going to give birth to a son who would be called Emmanuel. This was not a miraculous birth. This virgin here was simply a young woman, a young woman who would marry and have a child by the normal natural means, would have a son that would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And this would be a sign or a promise that before this boy grew up, before the boy knew right and wrong, this threat against Judah would be removed. If you read on a little further in the scripture, you see that. That was the immediate context of that. But as you know, the nature of biblical prophecy is such there is sometimes there is a deeper fulfillment and a deeper meaning here. And in fact, Matthew quotes this, Matthew 1, 18 through 25, right? Saying, says, all this took place, speaking of the birth of Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary, an actual miraculous birth to a virgin, right? It said, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This was a literal virgin, and this was literally God with us. A deeper fulfillment. Isaiah goes on a little further to prophesy about Messiah, and he says in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. How many of you, when you hear this, you read that, you can't help but think of it, Handel's Messiah, right? You hear that music in there, right? It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here we see that the offspring of David will rule forever. Jesus Christ was a In his humanity, he was God, yes, but he was also man, right? And in his humanity, he was a descendant of David. And here we're told the offspring of David will rule forever. David was a king of Israel. God blessed him. But he he promised David, there is one who is coming after you, a son of David, Some many years later, he will rule. He will sit on your throne. But he will rule not for 10 years or 20 years or even 100 years. He will rule forever. 
So Isaiah tells us some things about Messiah here. Is that this child, this son would be given, he would be given to the nation as one of their own. He would be born unto them as one of their own. That he would rule over them. He would rule over God's people. The government will be on his shoulders. That is, he is going to have that role as Messiah king. That he will rule over all of the nation as their king. And then we're given these descriptive names for him. He is told, called to be a wonderful counselor. When you really need some great advice, do you like to go? Is there somebody in your life who you can look to as a good counselor? Now, maybe they actually work as an official counselor, but maybe not. There's just someone they can give you good counsel, good advice, right? And here, this one will be called the wonderful counselor, the one you can go to, the one that you can trust. The people will listen to him as their king then. He is also mighty God. Well, that's something, isn't it? This Messiah, this king is going to come. And okay, a child is born, got it. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. He'll be very wise, but also mighty God. Hmm. Not too many people can, uh, can put that on their list of, uh, of descriptions, can they? Only one I know of, Jesus Christ, right? He was mighty God. Emmanuel, God with us. But then also, he would be called Everlasting Father. You know, some people look at this, they get a little confused. They say, wait a minute. I thought in the Trinity, you've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son of God. How can the Son of God also be called the Father, Everlasting Father? Well, because in, the, in, in this context, we're not talking about the Trinity here. We're not talking about the Son as the Father. The Son is not the Father, Right? But he is, what, it is a title referring to everlasting father is a description, an idiom which is used to describe the Messiah's relationship to the people, that he is a father to them, like a father to him. He will be a fatherly ruler over them. Not that he is the father of the Trinity, but that he is over them like a fatherly ruler then. He is also called the Prince of Peace, that he would bring peace to his people when they are properly related to him, that he would sit on David's throne and that his rule would be an eternal rule of peace and justice. It will have no end. It will go on forever. How can a king's rule go on forever and ever? Well, you have to be an everlasting king, don't you, to do that? And his kingdom, he will rule forever. And all of this will be accomplished if human beings step up to the task and do their part, right? No. How is all of this going to be accomplished? By God himself. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Have you know that there are times that, 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 that God, God simply does this And he doesn't consult you or me. And he doesn't wait for you and me. He simply does it, right? Now, granted, we, sometimes God gives us the privilege of being a part of what God is doing in the world. But is he ultimately depending on you or me to do anything? No, he isn't. And so God says, I will do all these things. This is going to have the zeal of the Lord Almighty 
will do this. It all depends on him. It doesn't depend on people. It depends on him to do these things. Well, in our next text then, we want to go forward 700 years to the time of the birth of the Messiah. Now, this was not written at that time. It was prophesied hundreds of years before, but it takes us to that time when Messiah would be born. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we're told this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So the offspring of David will rule forever, but also the offspring of David would be born in Bethlehem. This ruler, the Christ, would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, about five miles south of Jerusalem. Ephrathah, it was an older name for Bethlehem and the area around Bethlehem. Who else was born in Bethlehem? David. David was born in Bethlehem, as was then his greatest descendant, Jesus Christ. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law understood this verse in Micah to refer to the Messiah, that he would be born in Bethlehem. And that confused some of the people in the day because they thought, well, Jesus, where's he from? He's from Nazareth. Well, yeah, he grew up in Nazareth, but where was he born? In Bethlehem, in accordance with the prophecies of Scripture, right? And so this Messiah ruler who will deliver his people was born in this insignificant small little town where the clans of Judah lived. He would come from Israel, and his coming forth is from of old, of ancient days. What does that mean? His coming forth, this one who would be born, this Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem, but his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. His origin was not in Bethlehem. When when is the origin of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? When when did his life begin? He had no beginning, right? Because he is God, his eternal. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. It's a way of referring to the, this is a figure of speech, from, from of old, from ancient days, that what? He is eternal. He has no beginning. Jesus, the Messiah, is eternal. So this points to the eternality of Messiah, of the Christ then. Well, as we've looked at all of that, you see in that revelations, though, of God's wisdom, of God's righteousness, of God's grace, and God's glory. Wisdom, how God became a man for us in order to do what we could never do for ourselves. When human beings fell into sin, did God panic and say, uh-oh, what am I going to do now? I have to figure out something. No, he had planned and purposed all along that he would send a redeemer, a savior. 
And we see in the, in the stories and the events of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, the great manifold wisdom of God in doing that, in doing, providing salvation that we did, that he would become one of us, that he would step into this world, he would take on humanity to himself, and that he would do for us what we could never do. What can you and I never do, no matter how hard we try, when it comes to the righteousness or the law of God? We can never perfectly obey it, no matter how hard we try, can we? Remember I've said on a various occasions, if, would, you, would you take this offer if God were to say to you, say, tell you what, as of now, I'm going to forgive all of your sin up to this moment. All of that's clean. It's wiped away. All you have to do now in order to be in right relationship with me, to have eternal life, all you have to do now is from this moment forward, perfectly obey my law. How many of you would, uh, would, would uh, take that deal and think that, oh yeah, I will perfectly obey. I'm not going to have any trouble at all with that. I can perfectly obey God, right? I don't think too many of us would take that deal, would we? How long would it last? A, a day? I don't know about even a day, right? You know, I don't even know about a minute, okay? Yeah. So... We cannot perfectly fulfill the law of God. We cannot be perfectly righteous. And yet perfect righteousness is what God requires. And which is what you want him to require. Because if he doesn't, what kind of a world do we have? A world like this one right now, right? Would you want to live forever and ever in a world like this? No. So in God's wisdom, he sent the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to do what we could never do for ourselves, to be perfect, to perfectly fulfill God's law. We see God's righteousness. You know, the life and the death of Jesus Christ, the cross, is the ultimate example of both God's righteousness and his love, isn't it? Because God is righteous, he had to punish sin. Because God is love, he punished it in his son so that we wouldn't have to be punished for our sin. And God does all of this for us out of grace. Do you and I, did we deserve any of this? No. And who should get the praise and the honor? Who should get the glory? God. He gets it all, right? So in these things are revealed God's wisdom, God's righteousness, God's grace, and God's glory. See, this is what Christmas is about. I love Christmas trees. I love the lights. I love all that. But it's about this, isn't it? So what? The wisdom, the righteousness, the grace, and the glory of God were prophesied and revealed in the events of the Christmas story. And that's what we celebrate here. I want us to think about a few thoughts before I challenge us here with an app by way of application. And that is this. You might wonder, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, everything, actually. Did you know that God is never surprised or overwhelmed by your problem or your problems? Was God surprised or overwhelmed when we sinned? He's never surprised by our problems. He's never overwhelmed. He's never at a loss. 
How many of you have felt at times like you just don't know what to do? You've got a problem or a situation and you feel like, I don't know what to do. I can't handle this. God never feels that way, right? He always knows what's to do, what's, what to do. He's never overwhelmed. And so we can entrust ourselves and our problem or problems into his hands. Now, does this mean that God is going to always instantaneously, magically sweep our problem away just like that? No. Does he do that sometimes? Yes. But usually not. It takes time. But God works in these things. And we need not be overwhelmed by problems because God is ultimately wise. I want you to know, too, that God will never leave you nor forsake you. We just sang today. It was a major theme. What, what, what word, Jerry, did we keep, keep using, singing? Emmanuel, God with us. See, God is with us. He will never leave you or forsake you. I don't know. Sometimes I, I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And I know that. I've, how many of you experienced that where you wonder, is, is God really listening? But how many of you who just raised your hand a minute ago know, though, that in time, ah, you did see how God answered that and how God dealt with it, right? God will never leave you or forsake you. He is Emmanuel, God with you. He literally, in the person of Jesus Christ, was with us, wasn't he? He was bodily with us, God Emmanuel. But he is with us always now, isn't he? Because he is the ever-present God, or the, the, the present everywhere God. But he never leaves, he never forsakes. He's faithful. Also, God will complete the good work of perfect righteousness that he has begun in you. If you put your trust in him, he has declared you righteous in him, and he's making you righteous, and he will complete that work of making you perfect in Christ. Is this as a result of your efforts or your hard work? No. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this, won't it? God will accomplish all he purposes to do. And one of the things he purposes to do is to complete the redemption of all who trust in him. Finally then, God will reign forever and make all things new. He is the everlasting king, the eternal one. He is going to make all things new. And we celebrate that at Christmas. So what should I do? Three things. I want you to do three things here today. I want you to thank him. I want you to trust him. And I want you to praise him. Can we do that? Let's thank him, trust him, and praise him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are the God who will accomplish all that you purpose to do. That your zeal will do this. Thank you, Lord, that we can entrust ourselves into your hands, into your care and your keeping. There is nothing, there's no problem that's too big for you, that you have overcome all in our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, that you are present always with us, you never leave us or forsake us, that you will complete the redemption that you have begun, and that you are the everlasting King 
who will make all things new. God, I pray again that our celebration of Christmas this year would honor you by keeping you in the center and the focus of it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org. 